0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. You can find my weekly columns at the Conservative Institute or get my Friday newsletter in your email inbox each week by signing up at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. If you were there this past week, you saw that I wrote about Kamala Harris's flailing campaign and what that told us about how pandering is working in the Democratic primaries. I also covered impeachment and the Democrats' lack of votes and what that means moving forward in the next steps since Nancy Pelosi has announced an impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. And then in the newsletter this week, I covered the arguments surrounding this round of impeachment talk covering both the pro arguments for the democrats and every uh, piece of evidence against that argument that the republicans will be putting forward. This podcast is powered by Podcast One who advertises on the front end as well as in during the breaks. I know that not all the time that those advertisements are coming through when I throw it to a break. So if you hear them, great. If not, that's on their end because I've tagged all the right places, and so they're just not throwing the ads up where they say that they're going to. So if you just hear a quick skip, that's why. If you'd like to advertise on this podcast, feel free to reach out to me. Contact that information for that as well as sign-up links for everything that I've mentioned so far can be found in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Overcast, and others. Five-star reviews help other people like you find us, so please leave those reviews and help us move up in the rankings. Alright, so this week I'm covering three topics. The first, we're going to go back into the impeachment topic. I'm going to cover the whistleblower complaint that I didn't really get a chance to go through in the newsletter this week, and it wasn't really a main focus of the column. And I wanted to point out some of the deficiencies that I've seen just walking through it and what that kind of can tell us moving forward into the next steps. I really believe the whistleblower will end up testifying before Congress and that they won't be able to keep their identity a secret forever. It's just going to be impossible for that to take place. The New York Times has already reported a little bit on that front, and I just think that'll end up being broken. The second thing I'm going to cover is a clip of Ted Cruz and Chris Hayes of MSNBC. They are discussing climate change at a a summit in Texas called the Texas Tribune Summit, and I'm going to go through that clip and cover some of the highs and lows of that, as well as some of my own thoughts. And finally, we're going to wrap up with a new study that was released by Jonathan Haight and some of his friends. He's a moral psychologist who wrote the book The Righteous Mind, and he has a new look on how conservatives and liberals are different with how they view morality and how that interacts with their political leanings. So that's an overview of today's show, and we're going to dive in first on the impeachment part. So, one of the questions that I got as I was preparing for this show was, What are the next steps? A friend of mine asked me, What are the next steps? Because it sounds like the Democrats already have the votes moving forward. So, what happens next? And that's a natural question to have. And the answer to that is, Not a lot's actually changed. Democrats don't really have the votes for an impeachment. What they have decided to do is move forward with what Pelosi is calling an impeachment inquiry. And this is really not that much different than where we've been basically for all the last two, coming on three years now, uh, of the entire Russia investigation. And now we're including roping in this Ukraine part and everything in between that they've thrown in. What they've been doing when Democrats retook the House is that they started investigating the White House in 2018. They announced all these various investigations that they were going to jump into, and they were going to rope in all the various themes of corruption that they claim are in the Trump White House and how they're going to bring these all together in the end and potentially put together articles of impeachment. They didn't want to lead with just one story. They wanted to go with Russia, emoluments, the whole nine yards. Everything that they could put together, they wanted to investigate it into all these various committees and put together an overarching theme of impeachment with Trump. So when Nancy Pelosi came out and said, hey, we're going to go and start this impeachment inquiry, there was no vote held. This Ukraine story broke and... What it gave the moderates in the party a chance to say is to let them come out at, on the impeachment story and say this is a national security issue. It's not just that it's potential corruption in the White House or it, it's this vague Trump-Russia thing. What they are they were arguing in this case is that national security is involved, which elevates this above some of the other stories. And so that allows them to take part, the moderates, the swing Representatives who represent areas that Trump won or were very close—they're able to make this a national security concern instead of just a simple political one, which is what a lot of the—that's just what a lot of the ground is in the Russia investigation. So the next steps, ironically, are not that different. In my column for the Conservative Institute, I covered some of this. Politico reporters went in and they took apart Pelosi's speech, and they started asking around, asking, you know, what's going to change, and Democrats in Congress said, well, not a lot. They're going to keep investigating, they're going to keep bringing witnesses forward, they're going to keep sending out subpoenas and gathering information, but in reality, the only thing that changed was that Nancy Pelosi gave a speech announcing an impeachment inquiry, and no one had had to answer for a vote or anything along those lines. So the answer is, what are the next steps? The next steps are that you actually have to move forward and take a vote. They have to put together these articles of impeachment. They have to go and get these committees to do something. Democrats have said that they might be able to do all of this without hearings in this round, but I seriously doubt that's going to take place. The representatives in these swing districts aren't going to be Wanting to rush through this impeachment hearing, although they may want that politically, their voters aren't going to want them to rush through and just throw out articles of impeachment and vote on it without a single hearing or bringing a single witness forward. So this is going to drag out for a little bit. At least, even if they push it, it's going to be towards the end of the year, maybe the first of next year, before they get to an actual vote. And they have to sustain all the steam that they've built up so far to keep this process moving forward. One of the reasons Pelosi had to jump on this story was to control her caucus. That's why we're at this point. The far left-winging that includes you know, the so-called squad and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and all her cohorts, they want an actual impeachment vote. They want to force everyone in the House to vote on impeachment and vote with them. They want these moderates to be forced to toe the line as well. And these moderates don't want that. So when this story broke, Pelosi was facing dissension within her ranks. She had to get, to let off some steam so that these representatives on the far left could say, hey, we're moving forward with impeachment to their voters, while also providing cover for these more moderate uh, Democrats in Middle America and in these swing districts. Everyone needs some cover from that, and she's providing that with them so, and she's doing that with really just a rhetoric change to the media so that they can all say that they're moving towards an impeachment. When in reality, nothing's changed. They're, keep, they're just doing all the same things. So that's the next step. The next step is they have to hold a vote if they're going to do anything. Otherwise, this is just going to be hearings all the way down, and they're just going to try to keep this at a drip, drip, drip type of story in the media. But as far as impeachment goes, this is just them swimming in circles until they can figure out if they actually do have the votes to do something. And that's the thing to note. If Democrats bring forward articles of impeachment, they're saying and telegraphing that they have the votes. That's the important part. So all the other stories that reporters are talking about of, oh, what will happen in the Senate? Will Mitch McConnell even hold a trial? None of that really matters. Democrats don't have the votes within their own party. There are a couple of Republicans who are willing to look into this impeachment inquiry, but for the most part, it's going to have to be a democratic led effort if they want to actually move forward with impeachment. And they just don't have the votes. So the next steps for them are getting the votes and whipping their caucus together. And when you have a rowdy raucous that like what Nancy Pelosi is dealing with right now, that's a very hard task. It's not easy and she's got she's she's got her work cut out for her. So then just moving out from there, one of the main pieces of evidence that we have right now is this whistleblower account. And I link to it in the newsletter as one of the primary documents that you have to know if you're going to move forward through this investigation and just understanding the entire issue. The two things you have to understand are that that whistleblower account and the July 25th phone call. Those are really your two primary sources and they're both short. The phone call is about five pages long. And this whistleblower report, as I'm going to get into, is it's about nine pages long, and four to five of that, interestingly enough, are nothing but media reports. And I think that's interesting to note. And we'll come back to that in a moment. So this report. Like I said, it's about nine pages. According to the New York Times, this was written by a CIA officer who had special detail to the White House for some period of time. We're not sure time frame, we're not sure exactly who this is, but we know based on the reporting in the report, in this whistleblower account where they called themselves a, a non-White House official, and from the New York Times account, we know it's a CIA officer had detailed to the White House, but they're not a White House official and they don't appear to be any kind of cabinet member. And the most important part here is they have no first-hand knowledge of anything within this report. So the nine pages cover an introduction. They cover the July 25th call, they move into the classification of that call, a brief discussion of Rudy Giuliani and another man, and then finally they end on the public reporting. So all the stuff that's been reported out in the media, there's this, just almost a bullet point list of all these different points of how they believe all these reports connect together with what they've heard happened in the White House. And after that, there's some classified appendixes that attack on to these sections. So, in the introduction, the main point that the whistleblower wanted to get across was that they were accusing the President of the United States of using his power and his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 election. So, in effect, it's, it's a similar thing that if you follow any part of the 2016 Russia thing where Russia interfered with the U.S. elections, there's a similar accusation here, and the accusation is that Trump was trying to get Ukraine to lead an investigation, a corruption investigation, into Hunter Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, and see if that connected with Joe Biden and bring that out for everyone to see and to complete these corruption investigations. And so the whistleblower is accusing this request for investigation, or an implied request for investigation, as being in a form of interfering with the 2020 election, a foreign country interfering with the 2020 election. So that's the main claim. Everything throughout here... You can hear a lot of different claims, a lot of different things of corruption. The main thing to keep in mind is that this is about whether or not Ukraine would be interfering in the 2020 election, and this would be like Donald Trump asking Russia to release any of Hillary Clinton's emails. So they're trying to connect it to that same theme. The whistleblower, like I said, the second bullet point here says, I was not a direct witness to most of the events described. And in reality, the only event you could find within this account for which the whistleblower was a direct witness relates to uh, withholding of, of military aid to Ukraine. The whistleblower mentions that they saw a order go out from the White House that sold, that said that aid was being withheld from Ukraine with no instructions, and they saw this order go out. That's the only direct witness thing you can see in this report. Everything else is from either readouts of trend, uh, phone calls, the main one for that is the July 25th call that's the center of all this, or discussions with other people who read these readouts or who knew people in the White House. So there's multiple layers of hearsay in this where this person was not a direct, had no connection in the White House with any of these people other than just basically office gossip. Now they dress it up by saying that the information provided herein was relayed to me in the course of official intra-agency business. It's routine for U.S. officials with the responsibility for a particular regional or functional portfolio to share such information with one another to inform policymaking and analysis. That's a really fancy, legal, lawyerly way of saying office gossip. That's all that is. Stopping by the water cooler and talking about what's happening during the day, and you can claim that that helps you in your work, but really you're just standing around talking. So this is talking about what's happening in the Trump White House with people who are there in the form of basic gossip. That's all this is. So we have hearsay, and nope, and office gossip. The next thing to note in the introduction section is that, and this is why you bring in the Democrats who are claiming this is a national security concern, this whistleblower account is from the intelligence community. It's from a CIA person. The only way they can issue a whistleblower account like this is if they believe national security is at stake because regulations say that if it's just a difference over public policy, a whistleblower account doesn't apply. So you have to connect this phone call and these events with a distinct national security interest. And if you don't, these whistleblower accounts are going to get rejected because the intelligence community is not allowed to try to call out political appointees or elected officials on different public policy disagreements. Because the intelligence community is not elected. They don't have to answer to voters. Public policy is not made by them. It's made by elected officials at all levels. And so you can't have them going around saying, oh, we don't agree with this, so we're blowing a whistle about this policy disagreement. It has to be about a distinct national security concern. And that was one of the things that you see, you saw in the White House. They, felt, When this was originally investigated, they saw that it was credible, but one of the reasons that they were slow with getting around to it is that a lot of this looks like a public policy disagreement, if you look at it from the White House's perspective. So that's the introduction. It's m- mostly about stating who the whistleblower is without revealing uh, pertinent information of identity, while also covering why they're making this complaint at this time. And then they jump into the second or the, the second section. And really it's the main section and for this report and everything dealing with the situation. And it's the July 25th phone call. Now, later on in the report, the whistleblower says that they had a readout of this phone call, which means they had access to the same five-page memorandum that everyone else had when they were examining this phone call. So, when reporters have said when the, and in examining this thing that the whistleblower has credibility because their account of the phone call matches what we see in the actual five-page thing. That should make some sense, and it doesn't leave much credibility because if you claim that you have this, then I would expect that to line up because you're just relaying the same information that everyone else has. So the phone call relates to a lot of different things, and the whistleblower claims that Trump sought to pressure the Ukrainian leader to take actions to help the president's 2020 re-election bid. Now, this is an inference, because if you go through the actual readout, that's not clear. The 2020 elections aren't brought up. It's just a discussion of corruption investigations and that involved Julie, Rudy Giuliani, and I believe his name is Paul Volcker, and how the president wants... Ukraine to work with Giuliani and others on these corruption and moving these cases forward. There's no direct connection to the 2020 campaign or how this would affect the 2020 campaign. You have to read in between the lines and infer all of these various things if you're going to make that type of inference. And the media has covered a lot of this. The main thing to note, about, and I covered it in mine in in my newsletter, so I'm not going to go into the full July 25th call. I'll link to it if you want to read through it. Again, it's just five pages, and I would recommend you reading through those five pages simply because, as I've watched various media reports from CNN, MSNBC, and NBC News, they have cut portions of this and linked various passages in these phone calls that are pretty deceptive if you look at it there's one in particular where they have clipped two sentences together and there and trump says like 500 nearly 550 different words in the span of those two sentences that they clip they they clip together it's not a smooth transition and so they're trying to drive a narrative and so if you want to know for yourself what's happening here i do recommend reading it so you have that and I just don't think when you go through that, that it's clear that the 2020 elections are at play with this. Sure, there's an investigation of corruption that relates with Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, and there's discussion of corruption. But what's also at play here is that you have a newly elected presidential administration from with Ukraine, and you have USAID being sent over. And the U.S. has a direct interest in understanding exactly what's happening with any of our money that's heading overseas. I mean, that's just a fact. Trump could have legitimately called and had nothing and meant nothing else by and totally wanted to affect the 2020 campaign with this phone call. But the way that he this is phrased and the way and the interests of the United States that are involved... There is a legitimate interest in understanding whether or not this is a corrupt government that was elected in Ukraine, and if they were going to use USAID correctly. In the newsletter, I linked to a political piece that reported on this, and the U.S. had frozen $4 billion in military aid across the board. A few weeks later, this $250 million to Ukraine was also included. And during this phone call, according to reports, Ukraine didn't know that any of this funding was being withheld. So when they are on this phone call, they didn't know at any point in time that agreeing that this, whether or not this Hunter Biden investigation related to the military aid that they wanted, specifically they wanted to purchase Javelin missiles so that they could use that to push back against Russian interference in their country. So there's a lot of moving parts here. It's not just, sure, you can make a pretty straightforward claim that what Donald Trump did is impeachable, but that's not the only fact at play here. There are other issues, there are other factors, and there are other variables. There's no strict quid pro quo in this phone call. And like I said, Ukraine wasn't even aware at the time of the phone call that their aid was being withheld. Congress ended up barking to the president a few weeks later and demanding that he release the aid anyway because they saw it as an important bipartisan function to do that. So a lot of this, I think, if you just read it yourself, you kind of get a better flavor for what's happening instead of listening to clipped media reports. And the other thing to note about this phone call is that a lot of this was driven by Rudy Giuliani. He's the one who had a lot of these connections in Ukraine and been pushing, according to a Wall Street Journal report, he had been pushing since the first of the year, 2019, to go through all the corruption investigations in Ukraine and specifically these relating to Hunter Biden. So they, the Wall Street Journal knew that he had this idea in his head that this was out there and that he needed to push it with the American media and others and that it was important to get it out in the open. So there's that there too, and you just you you kind of just have to keep all of these things and kind of track them separately, um, because they all have each of these people has their own unique place in this, and there's no direct link, unlike what the media would say. The next major section here that the whistleblower gets into is restricting access to this phone call. He says that in the days following the phone call, referring to the July 25th call, I learned from multiple U.S. officials that senior White House officials had intervened to lock down all records of the phone call, especially the official word-for-word transcript of the call that was produced, as is customary, by the White House Situation Room. And he said the conclusion here is this set of actions underscored to me that White House officials understood the gravity of what had transpired in the call. So, effectively, the White House moved this to a special secured um, server, for lack of a better word. In the classified appendix, he describes it as a computer system managed directly by the National Security Council Directorate for Intelligence Program, And this is a standalone computer system reserved for code-word-level intelligence information, such as covert action. And so the whistleblower read this as the White House was doing something bad, and this was their form of a cover-up, which is a natural way to read this, just given how incompetent the Trump administration is in a lot of this stuff. But it's not the only explanation for what happened. We know when Trump was first elected, one of the first phone calls he took was a phone call conversation with the leaders of Australia, and that phone call and all of its contents were immediately leaked to the press with no one in the Trump administration understanding where that leak came from. There was a second leaker early on, you can go back and look up, named Reality Winner, the name of this person. And they grabbed multiple different classified information from, I believe is the NSA, and leaked it to The Intercept, an online news organization. And so these leader calls, where Trump talks to various leaders, a lot of that stuff has been leaked by people outside the White House. And the, the White House, over time, has tried to clamp down on a lot of these things. And the New York Times reported, after this all broke, that the White House had put, not this wasn't the only, the only uh, phone call conversation, the Ukrainian one. It wasn't the only one in this database that the whistleblower was noting. The New York Times reported that there were others that involved Russia, Saudi Arabia, and other countries where the White House was storing these in order to protect the information they're in and to prevent it from getting leaked to the press. So while you can read it one way, that this is the White House trying to commit a cover-up, you can also read it another way, that they had this is their way of clamping down on the conversations between Trump and these foreign leaders of leaking out. Now whether or not the White House will end up making this argument, I don't know. They haven't made a lot of the more compelling arguments that are available to them just because they're sort of doing their thing. It's like infrastructure week all over again, where they they flail about and throw just about every defense you can think of, even the ones that don't work. But we do know that these things happen, and this would be things that the Senate or even the House would look at if they were going to move towards impeachment. The next section in this is the circum- he is titled, Circumstances Leading Up to the July 25th Presidential Phone Call. And here, the whistleblower details some information from news reports, or, well, I'm sorry, that's not the name of this one, that's the next section. Before that, it's called Ongoing Concerns. And in this brief section, the whistleblower details some information that involves Kurt Volker, um, a a U.S. special representative for Ukraine, no negotiations, and Rudy Giuliani. There's not a lot of information here. It's very short. There's probably more there that will come out once the House gets involved and starts investigating. So I'm not going to opine too much on that, just because we don't know all of what Rudy Giuliani did. I'm recording this on a Saturday evening, and I've read multiple stories today just trying to piece together all the various things that he did. And so he could very well be a fall guy for all this because his, his his involvement with Ukraine goes back to 2008. So just keep an eye on some of that. What the Whistler said could be true here. I don't fully know, and there's still a lot of investigation and reporting that will have to go into that. But the next section I did want to get to—it's it, called "Circumstances Leading Up to the July 25th Presidential Phone Call," and it begins on page, at the end of page four of the report, and continues on till the end of page seven. And for all these pages, the only thing they have in common is that it's the whistleblower digging into various media accounts and looking at what the media has reported around Trump, Ukraine, Giuliani, everything, and you see things, everything from, from sources like The Hill, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and others, and just what they are reporting on all of this, and trying to connect it together in sort of a connect-the-dots way. And while that's fascinating and interesting... I'm left sitting here as I'm looking at this, just wondering, why is something like that in a whistleblower account? A whistleblower account is there to say that the gov- that they have information internally that the government is taking wrong action. If you're relying on public media accounts like that, that's not anything for a whistleblower to do. That's something that Congress is supposed to see and say, hey, we have oversight committees. We can look into this. So a whistleblower relying on media reports sort of undercuts their credibility as having anything interesting to say. So all we have so far from this whistleblower account, half of this report is practically these media reports, which are interesting, but it doesn't tell us anything about what's happening that this whistleblower had, information that they had, that directly related to a national security concern. If Congress believed these media reports were a national security concern, they could hold hearings on those exact reports. They've done it millions of times before. It's it's what they do. That's their main thing that they do right now since they don't focus on passing legislation. They hold these hearings on all these different media reports and then end up running on re-election on what they what they talked about in these hearings. So the fact that he compiled all of this is really strange to me it suggests some have suggested that he had he or she had help in putting this report together that they went directly to the committee and that's not an out of the question that they went to the democrats on the committee first to put together this to put together this entire report and then submitted it through the official channels that can explain some of this media reporting since It's pretty light on everything else. I don't even consider the media sections to be all that that important. What is important is that phone call and everything related to that. The secondary thing that's important is when you dig into the couple pages of appendixes at the end, they focus in on the special system that the White House had built. A few sections of this are blacked out because they say that they are classified. But one of them relates some information about a delegation that was going to go to Ukraine. And it says, in part, according to these officials, it was made clear, and made clear as I will quote quotations, to them that the president did not want to meet with Mr. Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, until he saw how Zelensky chose to act in office. Whistleblower says he doesn't he or she doesn't know how this guidance was communicated or by whom, and also doesn't know whether this action was connected with the broader understanding described in her in other things. Basically whether or not that is those instructions of how the president chose to how Zelensky chose to act in relation to the US was whether or not that was related to military aid or the demands to investigate Biden, or Hunter Biden. So that's one of the more interesting things here because it's the whistleblower accusing Trump of withholding aid for the express purpose of seeing whether or not he would move for Ukraine to move forward with these corruption charges. And that would be a serious, serious charge, if true, because it would be Trump using his office to benefit his own personal campaign. It's absolutely an impeachable offense. If you do that, that doesn't mean he should be impeached for it, but it is an impeachable offense. And I'll get into more of that here at the end here on this section. But there is an alternative explanation. In the newsletter, one of the early reports when the aid was held up and this none of this story with Ukraine was on anyone's radar, there was the senators were questioning why the White House was holding aid because they wanted Ukraine to get access to it. And one of the senators, I believe it was Senator Lankford out of Oklahoma, have it linked in the newsletter, he said one of the reasons that the White House could have been withholding aid at the time was because they wanted to see whether or not the newly elected administration in Ukraine was going to be good for the U.S. to deal with or not, and whether or not they would be allies or whether they would be corrupt and connected to Russia. So, there is this out there that if Trump said he wanted to see how Zelensky, quote-unquote, chose to act, that could also relate to him referring to whether or not this was a good administration to deal with, which would be in the U.S. interest to understand before moving forward. So, we don't know what happened either way, but based on media reports... At the time this was all happening, there are alternative explanations. Because when it was happening at the time, no one really knew. The White House wasn't offering anything. But one senator did offer that up as a reason at the time before all of this blew up. So the other thing, and this will be the last point on this impeachment, is, this is the very last point, it's about the suspension of aid. And the very last sentence is, the whistleblower says, As of early August, I heard from U.S. officials that some Ukrainian officials were aware that U.S. aid might be in jeopardy, but I do not know how or when they learned of it. Now we know, based on some media reports, that the suspensions of this aid wasn't known to Ukrainians on the call on July 25th. And we know, based on just reporting that the White House had frozen this aid anywhere from about a week or more before this phone call took place. And before that, they had frozen $4 billion more in aid across other countries. No, none of this was explained. Uh, the aid was later released after the fact. And no one knows why this happened. The White House will have to come up with a, with a description for what happened and when it happened and why. But it's also pretty clear that the whistleblower doesn't know why any of this happened and they're connecting it using all the media reports that come before this to connect this all to nefarious For with nefarious explanations. And that's great for the whistleblower, but it's also not the only story that could be neha- the only explanation. There could be other explanations here. And that's really my overall problem with the entire Whistleblower report. It's very weak on first-hand knowledge, relies a lot on what it gleaned from other people, and the inferences that it draws from all this, the little data that it does collect, is weak. The media section that it builds together is obviously just from Googling around and looking at all the stories that were reported during these periods of time. And if you Googled a little more and look at the stories of reporting around the U- Ukraine aid being withheld, you could pretty easily find that there were other explanations here that involved not national security, but public policy concerns from the U.S. regarding Ukraine. Could Trump be impeached by all this? Sure. There is, if this happened directly as how Democrats are accusing him of saying this, then this is absolutely impeachable conduct. There are a lot of things that are impeachable conduct. Impeachment is not a legal proceeding. It's a political one. So if there are the votes in the House and both the Senate, then Trump can absolutely be impeached. It's not beyond the realm. The, as I wrote in the Conservative Institute, the Constitution only requires high crimes and other misdemeanors. That is a purposely vague phrase that is left up to Congress to figure out And because it's so highly political, that's why we haven't used it altogether that much, because you have to get together a lot of support to impeach a president. And why would you bother to do that when elections are usually right around the corner? So there's usually not a reason to go through all of that. And this whistleblower account, there, there, there are a lot of inferences about what have happened here, and not a lot of proof to back up those inferences. It's certainly one way to read a lot of this information, but it's also not the only one. So I would just say to keep a skeptical mindset over most of this and over what is being reported in the news. Cable News really wants impeachment proceedings, so they're gung-ho. Anything related to impeachment. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. They are incentivized to move towards impeachment. But if you want the truth, you should keep a skeptical and open mindset and look at all the information. That's why I laid it out at the beginning of the newsletter to let anyone who wants to read it, read it themselves. And then I would just keep an eye on what happens with Rudy Giuliani's involvement in all of this and all the people that he drags in with it because that's an unknown. No one knows how that's going to end up. And frankly, no one knows how this entire impeachment process is is going to work out either. Democrats don't currently have the votes. Republicans don't have an incentive to see if there's any votes that would look for it in their favor. And so, until any of that changes, this is going to be just a lot of media reporting and a lot of hysteria by national reporters, and I would just say to maintain a saneer mindset and look at all the evidence as it comes out. After the break, we'll jump into the Ted Cruz clip and walk through that. All right, I promise these next two sections won't be as long as the first one. The impeachment story is very long and very detailed and requires some time to walk through. This next segment is about Ted Cruz and Chris Hayes. There's a festival happening in Texas called the Texas Tribune Summit. Texas Tribune is a newspaper there. And they're holding this summit and talking to various leaders and media organization leaders and having them talk on stage and go through various things. And one of these interviews was Chris Hayes of MSNBC interviewing Senators John Cornyn and Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, and talking through various issues. And in the clip I'm gonna show now, this is Ted Cruz talking to Chris Hayes about the issue of climate change and just where Republicans stand on that issue in general. Human activity is putting carbon in the atmosphere, the carbon is warming the earth, and we need to reduce carbon emissions.
1: All right, so you had three statements there. Statement number one is unequivocally correct. State number two or three, the data are mixed. And, They're and, not and, mixed. And, and let, me st- let me start with just... They just the radical- aren't mixed. <laughs> you guys, 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 seriously. So see, see, this is what's known as, as, as sort of no. intelligent scientific discussion. <laughs> yeah. But actually, look, well, no, but scre- how- that screaming says something. I, I am the son of two scientists. My parents are mathematicians and computer programmers. I believe in science. I believe in data. I believe in following science and data. I think what is dangerous about the climate m- movement is it has become an emotional primal scream rather than being driven by science and data. I'm perfectly happy, and I think we should have conversation about data. And let, me, let me say more about that. Uh, let, me just, let me ask you there. How much time have you spent with climate scientists? Uh, I've chaired multiple hearings, uh, hearing testimony from multiple climate scientists across the spectrum. I've heard people who are both. There's just not a spectrum, though. I, There's uh, a spectrum uh, here. Let me say this. Okay, I'll tell here, you what. I'll, I'll tell you what, Chris. Let me encourage you to watch. So I chaired. A hearing I, in the Commerce Committee, I, I used to chair the Science and Space Subcommittee. I chaired a hearing on the data behind global warming. We had a number of witnesses. I encourage you to read their testimony. These, these are respected professors at academics, and they had a range of views. I can tell you the climate alarmists, if you go back, Go back to the 60s. In the 60s, there were a series of predictions. The world is ending in 10 years. In the 70s, the world is ending in 10 years. In the 80s, the world is ending in 10 years. In the 90s, the world is ending in 10 years. Their predictions keep be, being proven wrong and dramatically wrong, not even a little bit Wait, wrong. But, that's, but-
0: well, that's where the clip ends up cutting off in the, the one that they released. The full interview was much longer because it involved Cornyn and Cruz going into even more subjects than were related there. That's just a clip that the Texas Tribune had released. And it's frustrating to me for a few reasons, and primarily because it's not so much Ted Cruz in this case, even though he usually is the one who's frustrating on a number of levels, but it's Chris Hayes, and primarily because he does this common thing that many on the left do when it comes to climate change. He conflates rising temperatures with an absolution and an absolution belief in climate modeling. And so when he says that there's no spectrum to what climate scientists believe, that's just a flat lie. There's not a spectrum of belief on observed data, which is if you're measuring temperatures from year to year and looking at averages and saying, all right, if you look at the observed data that we have, temperatures are rising. We can look at that, we can compare 70s, 80s, 90s. 2000s and now the 2010s, we're moving into the 2020s. We have all this observable data. and We can look at the averages and we can see the general trend lines from that data. That temperature is going up. That's not a controversial statement. What is controversial are all the different modeling. And when all of these people, most notably this past week, before she was swallowed up by the impeachment thing we had out there, Greta Thunberg, who was accusing everyone in the UN of ignoring the world that was going to end in 10 years and murdering her child entire life. She was just a child and her entire life was over because climate change was going to kill the entire Earth and we were going to be extinct as a species in 10 years. That is nonsense. You get into some of this alarmism, and hayes likes to pretend that all of that is that there's just no variance in that and he's just wildly wrong on that you have the observable data which is uncontroversial because you can look at it you can measure it you can compare it and you can just you can do all you can manipulate the data that's there and you can see where things are and where they've been modeling is very different Modeling is always going to be wrong because we know all models are inherently wrong. Modeling is attempting climate models trying to account for every last single variability in in the climate and project forward what's going to happen. And a lot of times what they do is they move forward in a straight line projection of moving forward. It's a lot like looking at some of these budgetary predictions. If you look in Congress, after you get out of this specific time where things are known, they do these straight line projections. They're like, well, if nothing changes between here and now, this is what's going to happen. And we know things are going to change. Things are absolutely going to change. And we know when it comes to these climate things, that things are going to change there too, primarily because our technology is going to get better. We're constantly getting better at making greener technologies. And so none of this is going to stay the same. Assuming that Technology and the way it interacts with industry and economics over the next hundred years, presuming that that doesn't change. If we've learned anything over the past 25 years or just this century, is that that is emphatically wrong. These aren't straight line projections. And so all this fear mongering, even if you have to go back as far as Ted Cruz. Went back. You could go back to when climate change really became a thing at the turn of the century with Al Gore and his Inconvenient Truth. He relied on modeling that predicted that by now, where we are now, everything would be horrible. And just none of those predictions came true. The models were wrong. They're going to be wrong here because we know what they're trying to do. They're trying to predict the future, and we as humans are horrible at that very thing. We're trying to get better at it, but we're not good at it. Because, and this is key, you can't control for all the variabilities that happen both in climate and weather. And weather and climate are two different things. But what I like about when you're looking at weather forecast and weather prediction, you can take a lot of lessons there and apply it for what we don't know when it comes to the climate. For instance, one of the things that I love studying on the side are hurricanes, And climate change interacts with that. And the prediction early on from a lot of climate change activists is that if allowed to go unchecked, climate change, and specifically global warming, would increase ocean water temperatures, which would allow for super hurricanes that would be stronger than ever. That sounds great, right? That sounds like it makes sense that you get all this warm water, it gives more fuel to hurricanes, and that means you have these bigger and more stronger hurricanes. Well, the more interesting thing here is that what they've also found on the flip side, there's two main studies on this hurricane thing and how they interact with, with, uh, with global warming and climate change. One says that if you have these warmer waters and you have all this warming, it will create stronger hurricanes. The other one says the complete opposite. And it says that because what they found is that warmer air also occurs, which increases wind shear. And one of the ways that you get these stronger hurricanes is that there is they have to have an environment where there is reduced wind shear, where their winds can flow around freely and they don't get torn up by countervailing forces. Well, in these warmer environments, wind shear increases and can cap off theoretically, the strength of these hurricanes. So you have two opposing things here. And that's not to say that one's correct over the other. It's to say that that is a fascinating question that we don't know the answer to. That's something that we have to study and find out what happens. There are these two forces at play. Interesting enough, when I was watching Dorian, which is one of the stronger hurricanes we've had recently, it hit, it had this moment where it strengthened right before hitting, and it did so over cooler water. Which is just from a scientific perspective, that is fascinating. You have this hurricane doing something that you wouldn't think it would be able to do, but it did. We have a lot more to learn when, about the environment that both just hurricanes and how they interact with all these different things because warmer water is only one variable when it comes to how you're trying to predict what's going to happen. And when you get into these climate models, they're trying to predict a lot of different variables, and there's less available data for them to do that. The weather and the climate, it's like an ecosystem. Everything is interacting together, and it impacts it. When you get into some of these 7- and 10-day weather forecasts, they're not just trying to predict what's happening in the sky. They're trying to predict what's happening with rain, rain on the ground, groundwater, how crops are growing, what are your river situations like, all of this impacts how weather happens. Every last single variability kicks in to change a weather forecast. And and sooner or later, just to quote Malcolm in Jurassic Park, sooner or later, chaos theory kicks in. We don't know what's going to happen because we're trying to predict where all these different molecules are going to be in the environment, and eventually chaos just takes over. Something we cannot predict changes what's happening, and that's on a weather basis. There's a similar problem with the climate, because and there's a reason we're not good predicting so far out with that either. We can't account for all the variables. It's an ecosystem. And a recent example of this that I like to explain on this, aside from hurricanes, is how they reintroduce wolves into Yellowstone National Park. Uh, Tufts University released a, a description, just a brief one, of what happened to the ecosystem and the physical environment when they just made one change to the ecosystem of Yellowstone. They reintroduced wolves. After... In 1995, Yellowstone brought wolves back to the park. After 70 years without wolves, their reintroduction caused an unanticipated change in Yellowstone's ecosystem and even its physical geography. The Tufts piece goes on to say that the process of change, starting from the top of the food chain and floating through the bottom, is called a trophic cascades. And according to Yellowstone National Park, here are just a few ways that just reintroducing wolves changed everything about the park. The first thing is deer. Now, it's true that wolves kill deer, diminishing their population. But wolves also change the deer's behavior. When threatened by wolves, deer don't graze as much and move around more, which in turn aerates the soil. So you've got all these deer running around aerating the soil now, trying to avoid wolves. Well, that has an impact on grass and trees. As a result of the deer's changed eating habits, the grassy valleys regenerated. Trees in the park grew to much as five times their previous height in only six years. So again, all we've done is reintroduce wolves. That's the only change we've made. Well, the change in all those grass and trees and the change in the deer, that also changes things for birds and bears. These new and bigger trees provide a place for songbirds to live and grow berries for bears to eat. The healthier bear population then killed more elk, contributing to the cycle the wolves had started. So again, you've got all these different things that are getting affected just by wolves that in turn affected beavers and other animals trees and vegetation allowed beaver populations to flourish and since they had all this extra stuff that they could build with that in turn allowed their dam building habits to provide habitats for muskrats amphibians ducks fish reptiles otters and more so they were able to have this all this extra uh, stuff in their environment to build these dams which created new ecosystems to thrive and from there more mammals appeared. Wolves also kill coyotes, which thereby increasing the population of rabbits and mice. This creates a larger food source for hawks, weasels, foxes, and badgers. That in turn affected the scavengers. Ravens and bald eagles fed off the larger mammals' kills. And then, after that, the most surprising thing that changed after that was the land. Soil erosion had caused much more variation in the path of the river. But with elk on the run and more vegetation growing next to the rivers, the riverbanks stabilized. So now the wolves had changed Yellowstone's physical geography. Now that's something that if you were trying to predict the outflows of what would change if you introduced wolves back into the environment, you may be able to predict the population of things like deer and maybe coyotes But you wouldn't be able to predict that that simple thing would have the effect of changing the actual physical geography of a national park. Those are the type of variabilities that we're dealing with here, even in the environment. There are a ton of variables, and temperatures are one aspect. And that one aspect can change a lot of things, but it's not always going to be in the way you think. And when you're trying to change what is happening from those temperatures, the outflows from that are not always going to be the same as what you think. And so when you're looking at the environment and you're looking at all these things, you can't say with absolution the way the people like Chris Hayes, says, Hayes say that there's just no there's no variability in what, these people, what climate scientists believe. There's a wide range of possibilities of what can happen when you start toying with the various things in the environment. The environment... Climate and, or everything, these are ecosystems. They're organic. They're not machines. A lot of these technocrats in Washington believe that you can just sort of toy with the environment, and if you put in certain st- inputs, that you're guaranteed certain outputs. And that's just not how things work. It's an organic ecosystem, and things can change based on just a myriad of things. There's all these variables that you have to account for. So in reality, when it comes to this, we do need to clean up our act. That I don't doubt. We have to do more about that. You have to do things like cleaning up the garbage pit in the ocean, and you have to plant more trees, and you have to start to offset all these things that we've done. And part of that's going to be bringing in India and China and getting them to clean up their act. That's where the major sources of pollution are in the world right now. The United States could go to zero tomorrow. You could do a Thanos snap end all pollution here and we could be at carbon emission zero tomorrow and it wouldn't change anything. You've got to fix what's happening on an international level too. And no, just as an aside, the Paris Accords that everyone billiaked about at the beginning of the Trump administration did not do anything for climate change. When all the countries in the world are willing to agree to something like that, that should tell you that they didn't have to do anything. That's how that works on an international level. It was just words on a piece of paper that meant nothing for how these countries worked through their climate change habits. So that's that topic. There's a lot more that I could go into there, but I'm going to keep that for there, and after this break, we'll move into the final section. Last point of the day. This is going to cover a new study that was just released as I was getting ready for this today's show. It's from Jonathan Height, who authored the fantastic book, The Righteous Mind, talking about why good people of both sides of the political aisle disagree on issues of everything, and why liberals, conservatives, and others are so different on issues of morality, and specifically is what he he focuses his, his microscope on. He looks at moral psychology. His newest study... Uh, He delves more into that in psychology and sociology, and he found these two basic conclusions from that. His first one was that conservatism is associated with greater moral concern for close others. That is, they have a greater moral concern for things like family, community, and country. So a close set of people close to them, there's a strong moral incentive to protect those things, and a stronger concern for those things liberalism was associated with a greater moral concern for broader categories like all of community and all of human all living things he looked at how he created a couple of different types of maps and graphs and looked at how the things tilted towards a person with a certain ideology. So, if you're conservative, you were more likely to tilt on these scales towards protecting those close communities, things like family and community. And if you're liberal, you tended to look at broader categories. Now, intuitively, I think if you think this through a little bit, that should make sense. It sort of describes what you see in an everyday world. And specifically for me, I was I was looking at that, and then I was thinking through something like Brexit. You have the Leave campaign, who was mostly going to be was a more conservative set, and they were looking at the closer things to them, like their families, their communities, and more specifically their country, and how that was changing in the face of a much broader category of the European Union. They wanted to protect their unique form of Britishness and allow that to thrive and have that nationalist Thing of England and the United Kingdom and all of that and not let a European Union override all of those different things. And they were very focused on that. The Remain campaign was much more focused on a broader category. Their entire thing was stronger together. They didn't want to leave the European Union. They wanted to be in that broader collective. And so that sort of matches these two things. Is that if you had... A broader outlook you were more likely to go with the remain campaign and if you had a closer look at family or a closer concern for your community you were going to vote for leave it wasn't just issues here of economics which you see a lot of people focus in on there's there's a moral concern here too I think and if you look through the brexit situation you see that you can also see that with Donald Trump I think his entire thing of his entire platform of America first, make America great again, it's focusing on this national identity and communities that got left behind and bringing them back with the rest of America. When you look at his opposition, it's much broader than that. I mean, you have some of the people in the Democratic primaries who are who say that any form of Immigration restrictions is just a form of racism and, and some of them have walked pretty close up to things like open borders and declaring that we don't need borders at all, which is a form of, at its best form, it's a form of looking at the broader whole. It's a moral concern for everyone and not just those in your community. It's, so when you think of it that way, what you see are people talking past each other they're talking past each other, and they have these unique moral concerns that are radically different from each other, which explains why they would be talking past each other. I'm sure there'll be more about that. Jonathan Haidt's always good about doing rollouts for his work and giving speeches and explaining how all these things work. Like I said, if you haven't read his books, they're fantastic. So I thought it was a nice look. It's something that's not getting a ton of play in the media, and it's worth noting just because it's another way to see how people interact with each other every day. That'll do it for today's show. Questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to me in in the contact information in the show notes, or reach out to me on Twitter at dvonci. Look for my next column to come out on Monday at the Conservative Institute, and make sure to sign up for the newsletter. You'll get all my columns and other writing in your inbox at the end of each week on Friday morning. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. If you liked or enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out in the rankings. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.